Welcome to Trinity Radio. You found the Christian channel that loves atheists. And today we're going to be taking a look at a response video to me answering my 10 questions for atheists from a few years ago, like 2020 or something. And Aaron Raw is the one responding. Let's see what happens. Hello, puppies and kittens. I'm Aaron Raw. If you've already seen a few of my videos, then you will have already heard me saying everything I'm about to say again but I'm trying to reach out to a new audience, a wider audience of believers this time by answering one of their videos asking 10 questions of atheists. What facts about reality that you and I agree are real facts about the way the world is does your worldview account for, but my Christianity doesn't account for, or at least doesn't account for well? And for those of you that would point out atheism isn't a worldview, I'm talking about you, your worldview that includes atheism. I can't think of any. Christianity accounts for evil, suffering, the existence of other religions, including supernatural events in those other religions, science, and differences among different denominations of Christianity. But I can think of many things that the most common worldviews that include atheism don't answer as well as I think Christianity does. Like universal supernatural claims, universal religious experiences, free will, morality, near-death experiences, beauty, the rapid expansion of the early church, the events surrounding the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth, and our shared longing for purpose and meaning. So what is it that Christianity doesn't answer as well as your worldview? So let me be very explicit about what I'm asking in a question like this. I'm inviting someone to engage in worldview analysis. So I'm saying, how, what are some things that you and I both believe are real? And I realize I mentioned in my list things like supernatural claims of supernatural experiences, claims of supernatural experiences in even other religions and things like that. We can agree that the claims are made, whether we agree that the phenomenon that the individual claiming it thinks it is, is real or not. And so I'm asking for things that we all agree are real and then asking, what's your explanation for that? Let's look at the Christian explanation for that, and let's see whose explanation makes the most sense of that material. And I think I'm, I'm saying that I think Christianity makes the big best sense of a wide array of topics, and you could use something like that to build a cumulative case for the truth of Christian theism. But what we're really looking for here are some things that you're ready to present, that you want to say, Christianity, my, my worldview, that includes atheism. I was careful in the original video not to say the atheistic worldview or something like that. In your worldview, whatever that worldview contains, if it includes atheism, I'm asking, how, let's compare your explanations of these things to the Christian explanation. I was asking for some things to be admitted into evidence, as it were, so for the, him to present something that he thinks uh, his worldview that includes atheism accounts for better than my Christian worldview does. Obviously, we, you know, I could off, I could do this with anybody. I could do this with a Hindu. I could do this with a Muslim. Say, look, what are some things that your worldview answers that Christianity doesn't answer or answer as well as your worldview? Um, with with a worldview that includes atheism, I'm asking you to give me some things that you think my worldview cannot account for as well as uh, atheism. It could be that. Uh, there are things that my worldview doesn't account for and say your worldview or the Hindu worldview or the Muslim worldview or whatever, neither, neither approach has the right answer, but we're asking to do worldview analysis. Which one answers the question better? And so we have to see both of the answers to get to that point. That's what we're doing. And it's an inference to the best explanation. Let's keep trucking. 
The Christianity doesn't have any answers, not even bad ones. Atheism doesn't either, as it's not a worldview. We get our answers from science, mathematics, or philosophy. Okay, this is excellent because a couple of things here. First of all, he says we don't give any, we don't have any answers. Christianity doesn't have any answers, not even bad ones, which makes it clear that what he's saying is it's it's not that your answers are bad. You just don't have any answers. Now, this is very bizarre because, of course, Christians have plenty to say about why they think certain things are true, like why they believe that morality is objective and that objective morality is best explained by God and uh, the events surrounding the life and death of Jesus and all the things that were listed. Of course, we have answers. You may not agree with our answers or think they're the right answers, but what does it even mean to say that they aren't answers at all? Of course, they're answers. And what is a bad answer if not an answer that turns out to be the wrong answer or an answer that doesn't seem plausible at all to you? Um, these would seem by your paradigm to need to be bad answers and not not answers. <laughs> they are definitely answers. I'm literally answering you about things uh, in, in many videos. So we do give answers. But if you think these aren't even answers, you're just wrong. They are by most definitions of what we would mean by the word answers. Uh, I don't even know what it means to say we don't give any answers. What we're trying to do is say, okay, inference to the best explanation. And this, I think, addresses Aaron's views about evidence as well. So, for example, let's say that I found a football um, in my yard. I've used this example before. And I come home and I see the football and I, I've got, I'm thinking what could be the answer, what could be the right answer, the explanation that turns out to be true for what's, for why this football is in my yard, because I don't play football and my kids don't play football. Well, I could come up with a few different uh, ideas about why the football is there. I could say, well, maybe, um, uh, maybe my wife bought a football for the girls. Maybe they thought it would just be fun to throw this football around for some reason. Maybe she wanted to teach them something. I don't know. Maybe uh, one of the girls is interested in football or developing a desire for it. Doesn't seem like my girls, but it's a possibility. So maybe the ball in my yard is because my wife bought a football for the girls. Uh, but this particular football has got some marks on it, some rough spots on it. Maybe the best explanation is that the neighbor kids tossed the ball over into our fence, uh, over our fence. We don't have a fence, but if we did over into our yard, right. And maybe I saw them playing with a football the other day. So that seems like maybe that's the explanation. Another explanation might be, oh, maybe, maybe someone is trying to play a trick on me. So they, they brought the ball here and planted it with the intention of there being no obvious reason why it's there just to confuse me. Okay, that could be, I mean, that's technically possible. These are three options. These are three possibilities. These are three explanations that perhaps someone might argue in favor of. These are three answers in that regard. Now, what we've got to do is take these three answers and see which one makes the most sense out of what we're seeing in front of us and all the facts and all the data that we know. Um, they, they could technically, any one of them could technically be true from my perspective at this moment, but I'm going to have to do inference to what I think is the best explanation. Okay. So my, my wife buying a football for the girls doesn't seem to track with anything I know about my girls, anything they're interested in, and even their schedules this week. 
So I, I'm, I'm saying that's probably not the best explanation, depending on what the others are. Um, that someone is trying to trick me seems like the most, uh, you know, far afield explanation. It isn't like, why would someone put this amount of time into something just to trick me about a football? It doesn't seem like a very good gag. Nobody's really going to laugh much at that gag. Which of my friends would be motivated? I don't think any of them. So I'm not wild about that explanation. But the one with the neighbor kids where they threw the ball over the fence and it landed in my yard. Well, that makes sense of the fact that the football looks kind of worn. I did see them with a football that looks kind of like this. That makes great sense of why it's here. It's ended up perhaps in my yard in the past. Uh, oh, so this is probably the right explanation. This is, we infer that explanation. Um, we can't like prove it beyond a reasonable doubt or anything like that, but it's probably the right explanation. We're doing that kind of an inference. And when we're looking, when we're doing worldview analysis, we're trying to stack up how you answer this question, how you with your worldview, whatever that worldview is, and yours includes atheism. So your worldview that includes atheism, how does it answer certain things uh, better than Christianity? Or does Christianity answer it better? Or if you wanted to cut this up a different way and say your, your, your worldview that includes atheism or my worldview that includes theism. The bottom line is we, we're trying to figure out something by comparing worldviews and seeing which one holds more water and which one sounds more like, uh, you know, not true. Just it doesn't seem to match the data. So this idea that there are that Christianity gives no answers is kind of strange to me. Secondly, I'm glad to see that, I mean, right after he says that uh, basically argues that atheism is not monolithic. Atheism doesn't either, is it? It's not a worldview. And of course, I said that. I said, uh, you're a worldview that includes atheism. I understand that you want to say atheism is not a worldview. Most atheists want to say that. Okay, great. I, I gotcha. So you want you say right after that, but we atheists do it this way. We get our answers from science, mathematics, or philosophy. Well, I mean, <laughs> you've just said that atheism is not monolithic like that, but you're probably right that most atheists are not going to use all of the same tools that Christians will. Uh, so what, what are you, you going to use? You say, you say science and math and uh, philosophy, I think is what you said. Well, that's fantastic because that means that you have more than one way to arrive at truth. And I think that when you include philosophy into this, you're including one of the ways that we can get to truth, of course, along with personal experience and other things, your history, you're, you're, you're looking at things that can get you to truth that aren't, that aren't the natural sciences as we typically think of them. And that means you recognize that we need a different sort of a meter for this than just those of natural science, which should be really important when considering all of this. The, the, we don't want to fall into some sort of a scientism where the only way you can know truth is if it comes to you through science, a statement that can't be demonstrated uh, 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 outside, you know, with science, right? It's got to be demonstrated outside of science. So uh, that's great because, I, I mean, a lot of what many atheists are saying sounds a bit like, okay, well, I'm taking, I've got this, let's imagine a metal detector, like the most perfect metal detector you've ever seen. And every time there's metal, man, it beeps, it chirps. It is like the best metal detector every, anywhere. And this metal detector, let's say, represents natural science, the, the field of study in natural science. Okay, so you've got this metal detector that is science, as so far as we say. But no one would ever say about the metal detector because it chirps every time you see metal. Therefore, wood and sand and water don't exist and air. No, you wouldn't say that, right? You'd say, oh, if you're trying to detect that, you need some other means of detection besides a metal detector. So we need different types of detectors. Those different types might be experience, philosophy, history, uh, perhaps a number of things. And, and, and by the way, if you're going to include philosophy in that, we're going to hear later on that philosophical arguments don't count as evidence. This is where I have to explain to believers why arguments are not evidence. 
Um, and, and I don't, you know, however you want to frame up evidence, that's fine. But if you think the philosophy is good for getting us to knowledge about something, then how does that work exactly? I'd like to see you explain exactly how we use philosophical reasoning to arrive at certain conclusions, because I think that we're going to find that philosophy can help us to arrive at certain conclusions about the nature of the universe and what caused the universe to come into being. I think we're going to get those answers philosophically. We'll come back to that. But for now, let's just keep trucking. Christianity doesn't have a source for answers. Y'all always say that Jesus is the answer, but not to any question I can think of. Your one explanation for everything is God did it. Okay, so Jesus is the answer. What, what are these answers that, what is your source, he says? Well, our source is going to be, at least in terms of the logical ordering of things, our source might be similar to your sources, history, philosophy, science, experience, all of these kind of things that we're going to bring together. And so is Jesus the answer to something? Yes, Jesus is the answer to the to that investigation historically into what happened with the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, I think also to get to the conclusions I get to about the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth, God is, needs to be argued for as, um, as a possible explanation for that. And once we have established that God exists and that Jesus was raised by God from the dead. And after we look at the historical explanations and reasons for that and other arguments around that, now we have other sources. We should listen to what Jesus has to say. But the notion that we have altogether completely different sources of arriving at some of our conclusions, it's not that they don't come from some of the same disciplines. We just reach different conclusions than you do when we go into those disciplines. And as for this claim that all we're saying is God did it, well... What we're trying to what we're trying to establish for you in, in a presentation of some reason to believe in God or that God raised Jesus from the dead is that some of these things are best explained by God's interaction or something that God did. God did it is the goal that we're trying to get through to through the argumentation. You make it sound as though when someone presents some argument, then someone might you're liking we would just say, well, God did it. Well, God did that. And, and of course, that's not the explanation. We're going to interact. We're going to engage. We're going to offer reasons why we think that the best explanation for a certain thing is God's involvement. That, of course, is the uh, goal we're trying to get to, that there is a God or that God raised Jesus from the dead when we're engaging with an atheist about the reasons why we believe. So, of course, the end goal will be look what God did. Look at the evidence that God exists and does things. But that's not a criticism. That's just the nature of what we're doing here. Christianity doesn't and can't answer anything. It doesn't explain anything either. Let's go down your list, starting with evil. Christianity doesn't explain why there is evil. Neither did the previous religion to come before Christianity. Judaism says that God creates both good and evil, that he forms the light and creates darkness. He brings prosperity and creates disasters. That's just a story from a different religion than Christianity, and it's not an answer. Nor does it explain why God himself is evil. I mean, he's not pure evil. The Jewish father God is supposed to be both good and evil, so not everything he does in whatever scripture is always entirely evil, but most of it is. There's no balance there, no yin and yang. We cannot say that God is love because there's no real love there. The character of God is that of a grotesquely cruel and abusive narcissist full of vanity, jealousy, genocidal vengeance, and merciless eternal rage, the very embodiment of evil. 
Yeah, the Hebrew word that is used sometimes translated evil is raw, and it can refer to moral evil, but there's two different things we could be talking about here. We could br be talking about God bringing some sort of the disaster or difficulty or uh, destroying something as an act of some sort of judgment or something, some sort of discipline or punishment or judgment on somebody that is completely different from moral evil. Uh, God doesn't work moral evil. God doesn't create moral evil in the sense that, uh, that, that God is personally culpable for some actually evil, sinful choice on Christian theism. Rather, uh, God may bring disasters or tear down mountains or things like that. The Bible says that God will do because he's an inter interactive God. And sometimes judgments need to be brought. That's a different question from is God immoral? You understand? Here's an example of where raw refers to natural evils. Um, in Psalm 34, 19, it says many are the afflictions of raw of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, if, if the afflictions, many are the afflictions raw of the righteous. If that refers to moral evil, it would be saying something like many are the moral evils of the righteous. But of course it means something more like afflictions of the righteous. And that's why it's translated that way, because sometimes these things don't refer to moral evils. They, they refer to um, things that would be natural afflictions or things like that. And if God brings punishment or discipline, why that's God's prerogative to do that. And if he didn't do that, in at least some cases, we might cry out that God was immoral for that reason. Bible God is overwhelmingly evil. And he was like that from the beginning. Look at the trap he baited and set for Adam and Eve, a couple who, because they didn't know good from evil, they couldn't fairly be held culpable. But God is not a righteous judge. So he punished them anyway. And he lied to them about what the punishment would be. There are other parts of the Bible where God not only lies, but he brags about it. And the book of Job is actually a worse indictment of God than every evil thing he ever did in Genesis, even with the worldwide flood and destruction of Sodom and all of that. What he did at the Tower of Babel alone is inexcusable. And that's if you read the Bible literally, of course, and no one reads the Bible more literally than an atheist because we don't have to apologize for it to justify or excuse or rationalize away any of the absurdities, atrocities, inconsistencies, and contradictions therein. We view God, at least the Bible God, as just a character in a story, such that even if there was a God, a real God, it wouldn't be this God. This one is fictitious, because the Bible is at least mostly false, if not entirely so, and the God that the sacred fables describe is definitely predominantly evil. Neither Christianity nor Judaism can explain why. I think it is that uh, the, the people who made up these stories also created God in their image, which is why he is just as racist, sexist, superstitious, and stupid as they were. Again, read the book of Job, where we see that God is an idiot. Now let's look at suffering. And Christianity doesn't even attempt to explain suffering. Judaism at least tried to with the fable that God cast a magical curse on the first people, but that doesn't account for the fact that all those, those people already needed to eat. Sin did not bring death into the world because the scripture says that we were created as animals, meaning that we have to ingest and digest living organisms in order to survive. And for those who say that fruit is not a living organism, of course it is. And if it is not, then it was a living organism that has now died. Same for whatever vegetables we try to eat. So death already existed, and Adam needs to eat something or else he would die too. God said that Adam could eat the fruit of any tree of the garden, 
but there were two particular ones that he was to choose from. It was a choice between two options because it's obviously metaphorical. The story is clearly a fable with a moral. Uh, to eat of the fruit of means to, uh, the res it refers to the result of choices made or actions taken. The authors never intended that we should read this literally like so many people do today. You miss the point of the story if you do. Adam was told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because then he would realize that he was naked because the storytellers who made up this tale thought that being naked was evil. And that shows how little the myth makers understood of morality because that means that being as God made you is evil. And therefore, if God made you naked, then he made you evil and stupid or at least amoral since Adam and Eve didn't know that they were naked slash evil. But that wasn't the only magically enchanted tree in the mythical garden. Adam was given a choice that he could eat instead of the fruit of the tree of eternal life. And if he ate from that tree, then he would live forever. I like to ask believers what they think would have happened if Adam never ate from either tree. Because if he doesn't eat from that tree, then he's not going to live forever. He will eventually die. But believers never figure that out. So I have to be more explicit. I asked them to explain what would happen if Adam never ate anything at all. Do they understand that he would then suffer from starvation? God could have given us the ability to make our own food like plants do. He could have given ourselves chloroplasts along with mitochondria, but he didn't. Consequently, we have to find something living to eat or else we suffer by God's original design. So Christianity doesn't explain evil or suffering. Okay, this one is actually um, very strange to me. I guess I can see where he would get some of these criticisms from some Christians, but I'm, I'm listening to this. I'm, I'm first hearing him say Christians don't even try to offer an answer for suffering. Well, tell that to all the tomes, uh, to all the people that wrote all the tomes on the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, the problem of pain. I mean, Christians have been thinking about this throughout Christian history. We still produce books. I just saw a brand new book that people are talking about with respect to the problem of suffering, problem of evil, problem of pain here recently that people are floating around. I mean, uh, we've had we've had uh, people on here who this is their specialty talking about the problem of evil. We've dissected uh, um uh, William Rowe and his famous paper on um, the evidential argument from evil and to and some varieties of atheism. I don't even know what it means to say that Christians have never attempted to offer any sort of an answer to suffering. And then he says, but the Jews did. But their answer to all of this was uh, had to do with Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, right. That's our answer, too, is, is we're going to be similar on this. So you, you say, well, but earlier in the video, he says, well, that's all just a trick. God's trying to mess him up here or something. But then later argues that this should be understood metaphorically and not literally. The authors never intended that we should read this literally like so many people do today. You miss the point of the story if you do. Before later arguing, as we'll see, that atheists don't have a really have a problem with trying to make sense out of all these things because we can just read it literally as it's written because we don't have to get away from all the contradictions. And that's if you read the Bible literally, of course, and no one reads the Bible more literally than an atheist because we don't have to apologize for it to justify or excuse or rationalize away any of the absurdities, atrocities, inconsistencies and contradictions therein. 
it, it sounds like in one breath you're recognizing there are genre issues that should be considered, whether we agree about which ones and where or not. And then in other places, you're saying, no, it should just be written, uh, read woodenly and literally. When you're talking about this, let's just take it as the Bible gives this story. First of all, we've heard that the fact that there are two trees in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, must mean that it's a metaphor because it tells you it's a metaphor right there because there's a binary choice, either this or that, which will result in um, this good thing or this suffering or evil or whatever. God said that Adam could eat the fruit of any tree of the garden, but there were two particular ones that he was to choose from. It was a choice between two options because it's obviously metaphorical. Are you saying that anytime there are binary choices between life and death, what we're talking about here must be a metaphor? Is that what you mean? I mean, for example, let's just go back in time a couple of years and without mentioning the huge worldwide issue that took place that had to do with health. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, well, what if there was one medication that if taken from one of the big companies, that if you took that medication, let's just say you were absolutely sure to be cured of whatever we're talking about, okay? And then there was another medication. Pick one of the ones that perhaps was touted about as a potential cure that turned out not to be a potential cure. And, and let's just imagine that, that that did nothing to protect you from this thing. Okay. So there's, let's say you could choose one or the other, a binary choice. Does that mean that what we're doing here is metaphorical and not actually referring to real medications or, or attempted medications? No, of course, of course, there's a binary choice here. It doesn't mean that it's metaphor. I've, I've never even heard this notion that if you have a binary choice, then that means it must be a figurative idea or metaphorical or something like that. That, that, that doesn't even track with me. Uh, but let's think about this for just a minute, actually. Would God have any good reason for actually giving them, in reality, this choice? Uh, well, you can eat all the trees of the garden, but, you, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you can't eat, but you can eat of the tree of life. And I'll go with you on this, that, that, that having access to that tree of life uh, represented or even practically meant living forever. Uh, I actually don't have a problem with that at all. When you go to the end of the Bible in Revelation uh, chapter 21 or two, I can't remember which, you'll see the tree of the of tree of life there again. And it's there in uh, th this new reality, the new heavens and the new earth. So what you're talking about here is you're talking, you're talking about something that, yes, I, I think they had a choice each day to choose to obey God and eat of the tree of life or to disobey God instead and to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You could obey by eating of the tree of life and all the other trees of the garden, or you could disobey by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Well, I think it comes back to this issue of free will that we're going to get to in a minute more philosophically that you think is impossible somehow because of Christian prophecy. And of course, it's not. But let's go back to this issue for just a moment. With the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, Adam and Eve had the opportunity to sacrifice something. Now, you have to do an internal criticism here and not just bring in things from outside. If you're trying to determine whether this truth makes any sense at all, you have to ask, does it make sense under the understanding of God and nature of reality that the Bible gives us? And so I, th I think that it does. The Bible makes hay out of sacrifice as a part of worship, giving up something that you could have perhaps that you would want for the good of someone else or in obedience to someone else. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gave them something that every day they could choose to give up in order to obey God. Okay, that is actually a very important thing if what you want with these people is for them to love each other and love you freely. 
because I think the highest expression of love is love that is freely given. Scripture tells us in the New Testament, too, that God is God wants us to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourself. Well, that seems to be all about love. It's all about love, despite what you think about it, about its expression of love. Okay, well, if it's all about love, the greatest love is love that's freely given. And so for that reason, God gives man free will. And so he can choose each time. Am I going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and disobey God? Or am I going to obey God and continue in fellowship with him? This is practically very, very useful. Okay. And then he asks some interesting questions. I, I think that answers it, by the way. But he asks some other interesting sort of questions that theologians enjoy talking about. He goes off about death before the fall and all those kind of animal death, plant death, all those kind of things. Okay. This is a response you would make to some uh, very... Um, very serious young earth creationists who think that there was no cell. I mean, I don't even think that's true. There are young earth creationists. I just listened to um, Inspiring Philosophy and Eric Hovind. And Eric Hovind, I think, was talking about how uh, even as a young earth creationist, he doesn't see plant death. Uh, he agrees with you that it's death under our definition of death, but it, but this wasn't the kind of death that was being discussed. So they don't even take that approach. That won't even work on them. But uh, with many Christians, big deal. So what? What we think happened at the fall specifically was man is no longer in fellowship with God. He is condemned to die. He is as good as dead, and he will experience the process of death now outside of the garden. You ask a follow-up question. Okay, but what about what if he ever, Christians never think about this. What if Adam had stopped eating in the garden? Would he, would he not then suffer and die? I mean, if you're obedient to God in the garden, you're going to do what God says. If you do what God says, you're going to live. Okay? That would, that would be to not do things the way God ordered things. Um, I, I, I'm, that's why I actually think this is a misunderstanding that later on in the end, in glory, what are we going to have? We're going to have the tree of life so that we live forever. I, I, I think you're making a great case here uh, for Christian scripture and its consistently consistency throughout the Old and the New Testament. But uh, a couple of things here. First of all, of course, Christians give an answer to the issue of suffering. The, the claim that they don't give an answer, don't even try, is shocking when we have this rich history of theodicy in which we're trying to show how God is just in the light of so much evil. Um, why the two trees in the garden? I think for the possibility of sacrifice and free will and an expression of love. And uh, well, but the but what Christians don't seem to understand is that the tree imparts everlasting life or is at least representative of the imparting of everlasting life. Great. What's your problem again? Where did God lie to them? I'm not getting it. Seems pretty solid to me. So Christianity doesn't explain evil or suffering, and neither does Judaism, nor has any religion ever adequately addressed the Epicurean quandary. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? And why call him God? This quandary was posed 2,400 years ago, about the time that the myth of the Garden of Eden was being adapted for the Bible, in a time before Christianity even existed. Yet that quandary remains unresolved to this day. So Christianity doesn't explain evil or suffering. From evil, you have two different approaches here, at least. You have the logical argument of evil in which you're trying to make a stronger claim, but it's uh, not as difficult to dismiss. 
versus the evidential argument, which is making a softer claim, but is more difficult to dismiss. Let me explain. The logical argument from evil, which is presenting the stronger claim that is easier to dismiss, is the is is making it such that um, it such that the, if the conclusion is correct, it it's just there just is no way that God could exist and be all powerful, all knowing, and all loving, and yet evil exists. There just isn't a way. And then on the other hand, what you have here with, because uh, it's a logical argument, what you have over here with the evidential argument is you have more of a probabilistic conclusion. You're not saying that God de definitely doesn't exist. You're saying that these uh, evils, and particularly these um, gratuitous evils, evils that seem to have no good that, that obviously comes out of them, uh, at least lower the possibility that God exists or count for something. And some will argue lower it so much that we shouldn't believe it or something like that. But the, but the logical argument is the, the one that says, no, 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 it, because this is the case, there is no God, the pro, at least not so defined. The reason that that's easier to dismiss, obviously it's making a stronger case, but it's easier to dismiss because all you have to do then, because someone's saying it just can't be possible that such a God exists and, and uh, could have justifying reasons for allowing this evil. Well, then that means if you're saying, no, 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 there can't possibly be an explanation, then all I have to do is give you any possible explanation for any particular evil. I don't even have to know if it's true or not, but so long as it's even possibly true, then it means the claim that you can't possibly, that God couldn't possibly have an explanation fails. It falls flat on its face. So what you would then need to do is, and go over here to the evidential argument and try to build a case there, and we can have our conversation about that. But the way this has been addressed is, and to say that it hasn't had an acceptable answer to the logical argument, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, well, it fell out of popularity for decades in philosophy. It seems to be making a comeback with some folks these days. Uh, we'll see how that, you know, fares out. But the fact is, I mean, about as much as you could have with an atheistic approach or argument, it kind of was considered answered in that regard for a long time. So, I don't know, man. Um, I think you should pick an evidential argument and try to keep trucking from there. Which already existed long before Christianity did, with scriptures that were already completed before the first books of the Bible were even begun. And some of those ancient scriptures were presented as the absolute truth and the revealed word of the one true God, even though they can't agree on which God that's supposed to be. Christianity cannot account for supernatural events and all these other religions either, especially not those tropes that Christianity borrowed from older religions and then adapted into their own lore. Other half-human godmen had already done this or that in other religions before your alleged Christ did the same, and not as well, I might add. Yeah, so let's think about this for just a moment. Here we've gotten a claim. A claim. Now, some people will listen to this and think, oh, wow, he answered the question. No, he made a claim that Christianity ripped off other religions that actually did it better than Christianity did. Which ones? But let's take a look at what Aaron might be referring to, some of the figures he could be referring to. According to uh, Mike Lycona, a friend of mine, TND Mettinger, a Swedish uh, scholar, professor at Lund University, and a member of the Royal Academy of Letters, History, and Antiquity of Stockholm, wrote one of the most recent academic treatments of dying and rising gods in antiquity. Quote, and this is, this is what Lycona is saying. He admits in his book, The Riddle of Resurrection, that the consensus among modern scholars, nearly universal is that there were no dying and rising gods that preceded Christianity. Now, Medinger took issue with that universal consensus or nearly universal consensus, 
and did his own investigation. He thought that there were, he said, at least three and possibly as many as five dying and rising gods that predate Christianity. Uh, but the key question is this, are there any actual parallels between these myths and Jesus resurrection? Um, he, he talks about, so like kind of talks about some of these characters and, uh, a lot of it has to do with the changing of the seasons and crops and rain. And when, why is the rain not coming and that sort of thing. And so he says in one of the more popular stories, Baal, uh, is the storm God in heaven. He's responsible for the rain. His nemesis is Mott who's in the netherworld. One day Mott and Baal are trash talking each other. Mott says, you think you're so tough, Baal, you leave behind the, uh, sorry, you leave behind your clouds and lightning bolts and wind and rain and come on down here. I'll show you who your daddy is. So Baal leaves everything behind and goes to the netherworld where Mott swallows him. How do we know that this happened? Well, because it stopped raining. That's how you know. Later, Baal's mother goes down and tells Mott, let my son go. Mott says, no. So she brutalizes him until he finally says, okay, mercy, go away and I'll let him go. She leaves the netherworld and a couple of months later, Baal's dad says, our son's alive. How does he know this? It started raining again. You see how that works? Uh, Addis, for example, this myth is older than Christianity, but the first report we have of the resurrection of Addis comes long after the first century. Adonis is more than 100 years after Jesus. There's no clear account uh, in antiquity of Marduk even dying, and so uh, a resurrection is even less clear. Some scholars say Tammuz in an account of a dying is an account of a dying and rising God, but that's disputed. And besides, it's not even a good parallel since there are no reports of an appearance or an empty tomb. And this myth was also tied to the changing of the seasons again. Osiris is interesting. The most popular uh, account says Osiris' brother killed him, chopped him into 14 pieces and scattered them around the world. Well, the goddess Isis feels compassion for Osiris, so she looks for his body parts to give him a proper burial. She only finds 13 of them, puts them back uh, together, and Osiris is buried. But he doesn't come back to this world. Um, he's given the statue, uh, sorry, he's given the status of God of the Netherworld, a gloomy, shadowy place of semi-consciousness. As a friend of mine said, this isn't a resurrection, it's a zombification. This is no parallel to Jesus' resurrection for which there is strong historical support. Now, whenever the, it, we're talking about this, what often comes up is Justin Martyr, because Justin Martyr was an early Christian, and you could say an early apologist, and uh, he was writing why he was writing to, to try and say something about Christian persecution. Why are you persecuting Christians when uh, you, 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 these other religions believe things that sound similar to what we believe, and yet you're not persecuting them that way? Why would you persecute us? So you understand he has a motivation to try and protect Christians from being persecuted. That's kind of what's going on there. So he's he's trying to, to make this case that, hey, you don't punish these other religions. We believe things that are like that. So why, why, are you, why would you persecute us? Okay, Lycona says about this, but look at the parallels he gives. He has to strain to make them. He talks about the sons of Jupiter. Esculapius was struck by lightning and went to heaven. Bacchus, Hercules, and others rode to heaven on, a ho on the horse Pegasus. He describes Ariadne and others who have been uh, declared to be set among the stars. He even mentions that when the Emperor Augustus was cremated, someone in the crowd swore that he saw his spirit ascending through the flames. These aren't resurrections, Lycona says. I know of no highly respected scholar today who suggests that these vague fables are parallels to the resurrection of Jesus. We only hear this claim from the hyper-skeptical community on the internet and popular books that are marketed to people who lack the background to analyze the facts critically. So, uh, 
that's all interesting on those kind of characters. But what about Mithraism? This is one that often comes up. Uh, in, in this discussion. Well, Edwin Yamauchi says, quote, the earliest Mithraea are dated to the early second century. These are a handful. There are a handful of inscriptions that date to the early second century, but the vast majority of texts are dated after AD 140. Most of what we have as evidence for Mithraism comes in the second, third and fourth centuries AD. That's basically what's wrong with the theories about Mithraism influencing the beginnings of Christianity, because Mithraism's uh, data comes to us from after Christianity. Yamuchi uh, refers to Ronald Nash and says, as Ronald Nash and so many other knowledgeable scholars have concluded, the dating disproves that Christianity borrowed its sentence from Mithraism. He says the following, uh, he quotes uh, Nash as saying, the flowering of Mithraism occurred after the close of the New Testament canon, too late for it to influence the development of first century Christianity. So if you want to go further with that, there's more information, obviously, and you can check that out. Find find a good book on that. We've given you maybe some places to look uh, in what I've just. I've encountered Hindus who say that they are the ones with the true consciousness of God, while Christians are deceived by demoniac forces. And you all say the same about them, as if your explanation of them is any truer than their description of you. Neither of you can show that you're right about anything. And all the world's religions combined can't even show that there's a there there. So here's the problem. There's two claims here. One is he makes comparisons says, look, uh, what you guys say about Hindus, Hindus say about you. So it, it, the, what's implied is it's a wash and you can't really make any sense out of any of this. That's one claim. He doesn't make that claim explicitly, but there must be some reason why he says, well, look, the Hindus say one thing and you say another and. You know, uh, but then he goes on immediately to move to a second and more important point where he says, neither one of you can show that you're right about any of these things. Hold on a second. This is this is exactly what we're trying to do. What What is your response to a solid case from the resurrection? What is your response to uh, the, to uh, the apologetic arguments that have been presented? Uh, you're making a statement. How would we adjudicate between two particular worldviews like Hinduism and Christianity. The way we would adjudicate is we would look at the evidence in favor of both. Christianity offers evidence. Christianity claims that you can look at this case for the resurrection, that you can look at creation, that you can know that there's a God from these kind of things, and so that's what we do. Now, you, you can't just wave those off. You would have to give some explanation of why you think those things fail if you're going to claim that you've already, that you basically claim victory. And well, look, it sounds like what you were trying to originally say is Hindus say the same thing about Christians when it comes to why we have supernatural experiences that we say about them when it comes to supernatural experiences. So neither one of us can be correct. But the, the explanation of, of those supernatural experiences, the answers that we give to those are not floating out here in the ether somewhere. We come to the conclusions we do about the truth of Christianity based on evidential things. And then when it comes out to these out on a branch, out on a tree branch, uh, challenges. Yeah, we have explanations of those, but they trace back to the roots that we have of evidence and good reason to believe that Christianity is true. And all the world's religions combined can't even show that there's a there there, that there is a supernatural at all. And the reason is because the real explanation is that there is no supernatural, but that some people are credulous and some are illusionists and Faith is inherently autodeceptive, causing every faithful believer to be convinced of their own supernatural visions and such. I was once a neo-pagan spiritualist myself, once upon a time. and I was invested in transcendental meditations and other occult practices, so I know how deceptive faith can be. 
So the real explanation, he says, is that there is no supernatural. Wow. What would be helpful is some sort of evidence, some sort of argument, some sort of uh, reason why I shouldn't, I should believe that naturalism is true. And as far as his comments about faith here, uh, faith is not how he describes it here, which is basically, uh, you know, believing what you know ain't so or something like that. I don't know how he would, we're going to see how he would define it later and we'll get to it. ...and such. I was once a neo-pagan spiritualist myself once upon a time. I was invested in transcendental meditations and other occult practices, so I know how deceptive faith can be. Another important thing here is he says that um, he says multiple times in this video that we should stop pretending this and that. And he speaks of believers as though we're just pretending as if we really deep down know it's not true. But then he says here that he knows what it's like to be deceived by faith. He knows what it's like. The only way I can understand that is he said he was practicing these spiritual practices. The only thing that I can take away from that is he really did believe it because he was deceived into whatever faith he was a part of. Even if it was not some big organized faith, he was a part of some faith. He uses the word faith to describe uh, some aspect of his involvement in it. And he seems to have really believed it and says it deceived him. So he really did believe he wasn't pretending. He actually believed that. So then why speak as though at least that Christians who are Christians <laughs> are just pretending and that we don't actually believe these things. Sure, there are some people out there who are claiming to be Christians and are pretending. Those people aren't Christians. And we can join arms and agree that uh, money-hungry pastors who don't really believe what they're saying are doing something that is immoral and wrong because they're not really Christians and they're parading as though they are Christians. I will join you in saying that people should stop pretending to be Christians. The thing is, there are many of us who are legitimate believers in all of this. And you seem to know what that's like because you said that with respect to some group or some spiritual practices or whatever, you were deceived and so must not have been pretending. Christianity certainly cannot explain science because faith and science are polar opposites. Scientific methodology is designed to minimize or eliminate biases where religion is a bias by definition. In science, all postulations must be testable and potentially falsifiable and based on indicative evidence. But faith means believing impossible nonsense for no good reason. But this just isn't what we mean biblically when we talk about this kind of faith. When we're talking about the word pistis, we're talking about trusting in something. Trusting, you can have trust in something on the basis of evidence. I might trust that the pilot is going to be able to fly the plane and get me where I want to go. But I'm not trusting based on nothing. I'm not trusting in the face of any good reason. I've got great reason to believe he can do it. I believe that, that we have a system that uh, I reasonably believe that we have a system that gets people from one place to the other with great regularity. And that part of that system is that there are pilots who are trained in how to fly planes and that that is a very um, integrated and, and uh, comprehensive process so that the person flying this plane should be someone who I can have faith in, I can trust that they're going to get me where they're going to go. So it's a trust based on evidence. Is this how people use this term in the ancient world? Why? I think that it is. For instance, um, uh, Theophilus of Antioch to Autolycus says this, Do you not know that faith is the leading principle in all matters? For what husbandman can reap unless he first trusts his seed to the earth? Who can cross the sea unless he first entrusts himself to the boat and the pilot? And what sick person can be 
healed unless first he trusts himself to the care of the physician. Now think about it. When we're talking about someone driving a boat and the boat itself and the earth to produce uh, some sort of fruit from planting a seed and uh, a physician healing you when you're sick, are we talking about things that someone trusts or puts their faith in on the basis of zero evidence? No, they put their faith in these people precisely because there's good evidence that these are the kinds of people or things that can help them. And what art, he continues, or knowledge can anyone learn unless he first apply and entrust himself to the teacher? If then the husbandman trusts the earth and the sailor the boat and the sick the physician, will you not place confidence in God even when you hold so many pledges at his hand? The notion here is clear. This is a definition of ancient faith. And what it meant was, look, you're going you're gonna to place your faith in something or some person on the basis of the good evidence that that thing or that person is going to come through for you in the way that you're imagining. That's what we're talking about here. We, tr- we put our trust, we put our faith in God that he will do for us in the future what he says he would do based on the good evidence we have for the truth of what's already happened. That's it. That, that's the understanding of faith that is important here. Useless speculation as if it was a matter of fact and pretending to know things you don't know and then refusing to admit when you were always wrong all along. And there's the pretending to know things that we uh, supposedly don't know. The pretending implies that we don't really mean what we say. And if you find someone saying, if you find someone pretending to be a Christian, I'm with you. You should call that out. They're pretending to be a Christian. Uh, I'm also against uh, unbelievers or even atheists who pretend to be Christians in order to whatever, milk people out of money or anything like that. I'm for Christians who believe what they say they believe and actually are holding this not out of pretend. Like you held to the the thing you held to, the spiritualist pagan thing, uh, and you really believed it. You were, you were, you say you were deceived, but that means you really, in some sense, believed it and you weren't just pretending. And, uh, and so I'm with you in calling out the people that pretend, but in any case, let's keep trucking. Sure. The enlightenment began in Christian countries. So many famous scientists once upon a time were a Christian, but those scientists knew that they could only perform science so long as it didn't threaten Christian beliefs. Some of those scientists complained about that, or they were punished by the church for being too scientific. Sure, the Bible says, test all things and hold fast to that which is good. But then you also have a limit imposed by Jesus himself, where he says, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Right. So here we have a treatment of uh, the historical beginnings of the scientific revolution and an explanation of why the fact that those were Christians doesn't mean that Christianity can explain science. Because after all, many people in in science, particularly in in that period, were held back from certain uh, conclusions or, or weren't allowed to come to certain conclusions because it would be at odds with the church or something like that. This is not what we're doing here with worldview analysis. What we're doing is which perspective, yours or mine, makes the best sense out of, uh, out of science. Who gives the best answer uh, for science? I, here's what those people in the uh, scientific revolution would have said or thought. And here's what I'm saying today. Science makes sense. Here's the explanation. It makes sense because using your rational mind to study the cosmos and find that it is rationally ordered um, is is uh, something that we would expect on theism. We would expect to find that it's not maddening chaos, that math is applicable, that order is there, that, uh, that it seems to have some design to it. I think that's the answer. And I think, uh, uh, 
many, many people would be moved by the answer. I realize that when we get into these worldview discussions and we talk about our own side a lot, we begin to think, I, I think most people would see this and they would just obviously see that, oh yeah, this, this science counts in favor of atheism. I think if you point out that in order for science to really uh, work, what you need is uh, a cosmos that reflects a rational mind. And that this sort of thing is why we see design in the universe. You give some examples of those designs. I think that people would say, okay, yeah, man, that, that science does seem to sit really well with theism. I, I think so. Of course, Christianity can't explain the differences between different denominations either, which led to Mormons killing Protestants and Protestants killing Catholics and Catholics killing Orthodox and Puritans torturing Quakers after the Puritans had fled from the Anglicans to say nothing of the Coptics and Luciferians and other Christian cults that were crushed by other denominations. If any of these people really had the personal relationship with Jesus that they all pretend, then none of this would or could happen. So notice something here, and maybe he just speaks hyperbolically all the time. That if any of those people, and he mentioned these big, broad categories um, he mentioned Mormonism, but he mentioned like some actually Christian categories. And he says something like, um, well, he says, if any of these people actually had a personal relationship with Jesus, none of this could happen or would be possible or whatever. Um, that makes absolutely no sense to me. I, I, I literally don't know how to even take that. If I were to say something like, if even one person in America was what was really not racist, well, then we we would have obliterated racism. None of these racist things would even be happening. Well, of course, that doesn't make that just doesn't follow logically. Right now, you might say, well, yeah, but God's in control when it comes to Christianity. Hold up. That's not what we're saying. He said, if any of these persons, any of these people like any one person actually had a relationship with Jesus, then this sort of thing wouldn't be able to happen. Not if God would jump in and fix it, it couldn't happen. But if any one person had a relationship with Jesus, that doesn't make any sense at all. That doesn't, maybe he meant any of these broad classes, but that doesn't work either. Because as long as there are other people exercising their free will to work against God, um, we're, you're not going to get those, you're not going to get a solution like that. Um, Christianity has held from its beginning that there would be false prophets, false gospels, wolves in sheep's clothing. We even see it beginning to happen in the New Testament, and it's warned against. So what, what we expected all along is that there would be people claiming to be Christians who become leaders even of certain organizations who try to drive a wedge between the truth and with Christianity. Right. We expect this. We saw it coming. Our Lord saw it coming. The apostles saw it coming. So they called it out. You, here's a testable prediction. They called it out before it ever happened. That seems like pretty good, uh, a pretty good evidence that that uh, this doesn't strike against the truth of Christianity. Of course, people are going to. The, the thing is, Christianity has always held that there are going to be people who uh, who because of sin or because they're just lying, try to drive the church in directions that they shouldn't go. And not everyone who is in leadership in a church, not everyone is a Christian. Okay. Some of them could even be actively uh, working against the cause of Christ and, and, and not just have a mistaken doctrinal issue. Uh, also, we should say that, and this is something that a colleague of mine, Chris Day, and I have been talking about putting together as maybe a book or, or a video or something, but this idea that what if it is the case that what God wants is for people to wrestle with these things and try to investigate and arrive at truth? Now, if you find yourself rolling your eyes at that, 
all of us do that with our kids, at least some of the time, with some things. I think that the ultimate message of Scripture, the need for salvation and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, is is clear. It, it's clear that anyone can can pretty well get that with a minimal education, see what's being said, believe it, understand it, accept it. But when it gets into some of these secondary doctrinal issues, yes, of course, there can be disagreements. There can be differences. I have many friends who are Calvinists. I have friends who are open theists. Um, and as a result, we, we talk about these things, we hash them out, we argue with each other, we try to arrive at truth in a friendly way. Sometimes it gets a little intense, but we enjoy it. That's what it means to be a theology geek. That's what it means to love the Lord your God with your mind. That's what we love to do. And we think that he delights in our coming together and working through these things and arriving at truth. But the very fact that certain people work against us or disagree, or that even genuine Christians might see things a little differently, in no way means that there's no God. What? Is, how does this follow? I, I don't see how this follows. Uh, it does. It seems to make much better sense on our worldview, which called this out ahead of time, than on a worldview without Christianity. Or would there even be different denominations? And if there really was a God, then there wouldn't be all these different religions either, all threatening their own punishments for dedicating their lives to the wrong version of God. Why is that? Why, why would we not expect there would be counterfeits to the real thing? Why would we not expect that if God is at work and humans have free will, that some humans will use their free will to oppose what God is doing? Why would we accept that? Why would we accept that they would not make up their own uh, uh, like counterfeits that have their own horrible punishments and things like that? It seems to me that that would be to be expected. Have you noticed that Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all based on the same God of loving forgiveness and peace and wisdom, yet they've all been at war with each other each since their inception. So there is nothing at all that Christianity answers as well as secular science and or humanist values. Yeah, hold up. Before we go on to that, let's, let's just appreciate what's just been said. He just said that Islam, Judaism, and Christianity are all based on the same God of love and peace and forgiveness and all that. Well, they're all based on the God of Abraham, but they might describe, Islam certainly describes God very differently than Jews and Christians might describe them. And we see Christianity as uh, giving more revelation to what was uh, revealed about the Jewish God. Uh, that, that, that's an important corrective just to be specific here. But when you talk about Christians and Jews and Muslims killing each other for uh, part of their history or much of their history, um, yeah, that's bad. I agree that that's bad because those people doing that aren't acting like Christians. That's the explanation. In atheist philosophy. For example, in your second list, we were supposed to be talking about facts and reality that we can both agree are real facts about the way the world is. But your second list includes things that are not facts at all, like the highly dubious claims about the alleged life and obviously embellished death of Jesus and free will, which probably doesn't exist in reality and cannot logically exist in a religion that believes in prophecy. And your longing for purpose and meaning that I do not share. Okay, so let's take those last two first. Free will, and we'll come back to that because he says it can't coincide with like Christian understanding about prophecy contradicts uh, libertarian freedom, I guess, the type of freedom that, that I believe in. Um, and then we saw, per but you do believe, like here's the important thing that we agree about. We agree that people that, that people strongly infer that they're free. They, they seem to think that they're free. That's what you have to explain. Um, I have an explanation for that. It's because they actually are free. Uh, like, why do people uh, have this belief that they that they have free will, libertarian free will? That seems 
imp almost impossible for them to even doubt. Now, that doesn't mean that they have it. I'm saying, what's the best explanation for that? Well, my explanation for that is they actually do have it. Your explanation for that is they don't actually do have it, but, and that's where you would need to fill in how they arrived at the conclusion that they do have it. And we would compare our answers, but many, many people, most question mark, at least many, many hundreds of thousands, millions, perhaps billions of people do believe that they have that kind of free will. And that phenomenon of them believing they have that free will needs an explanation. I'm happy to talk about that explanation from my perspective. We'd like to know what your uh, explanation is. Purpose and meaning. You may not think that there is any transcendent purpose and meaning. You just do the existential atheist thing of making up a, a, a purpose for yourself. Great, but that's we still need to talk about that. People uh, have, by the millions, by the hundreds of millions, perhaps by the billions, have this idea that their life has value, that their life has some ultimate meaning and purpose, that there is something beyond themselves that they should be doing. And I'm asking for an explanation for that phenomenon. I have an explanation for that phenomenon. There is a God and they do have purpose and meaning because the inventor of something is the one who gets to decide what that thing is to be used for. The inventor of a shovel got to decide that the shovel is for moving dirt around. The inventor of a hammer is, uh, is the one who gets to decide that that's for putting nails into boards or whatever. The inventor of humanity gets to decide what the purpose of humanity is. And the fact that humanity has consciousness where uh, hammers, so far as we know, and shovels don't, is irrelevant to the point we have an inventor. And so uh, he th that's my answer is that you feel like you strongly like you have purpose and meaning because you do. You feel like you have free will because you do. You feel like you have transcendent morality because there is. We we think all of these things are uh, are things that we strongly believe because they actually are real. That's what we think about the at least those of us who do think those things. Um, so what what uh, what I need to hear from you is. What's your explanation? Now, as for that first thing, the thing about Jesus, okay, all right, you are just flat denying that we have, uh, that we can know things about the, historically speaking, about the life and death of Jesus. Uh, wow. But uh, I would have thought that you would have agreed with me on that. But if you didn't, I would just be like, all right, that won't be one of our facts that we're going to use here. We might talk more about what should count as facts with the resurrection later on. But right now, you're right. I'm trying to find things that you and I both agree are facts about the nature of reality. And so if if you don't agree, if you don't believe that there was a Jesus or that we can know certain things about his life and how he died, okay, I guess we're not going to get far down that road. That's, that's free. I guess you can think whatever you want about that. But I would still want explanations for these other things. And still, I'm waiting for you to present something that you think that your worldview accounts for really well, that Christianity doesn't account for or account for as well as your worldview that includes atheism. That's what we're looking for. If you want your life to have purpose, then you must decide what you want that purpose to be, and you must work to that end. I did, but I went through much of my life with no purpose at all, and I was perfectly happy with that. I've already shown in previous videos Evolution actually provides a better explanation than any religion ever could for morality and for our appreciation of beauty and even for universal religious experiences and supernatural claims, except for the alleged near-death experiences. I want to come back to this about near-death experiences because it gets really good, but I do just want to say here that um, he, he has just basically said evolution answers 
all of these things except near-death experiences, at least the things that you mentioned there. So we're not just talking about morality. We're not just talking about purpose and all that and beauty. We're also talking about supernatural claims in our religion and in Christianity and in other religions. And he says evolution explains all of that. Well, that's great. Can you tell us how it explains it? Because um, you've made a claim, but uh, to say evolution did it, you understand earlier you said God did it isn't a very good explanation. Is evolution did it a very good explanation? I think you would say God did it isn't a good explanation because we would want something more specific as to what indicates that and all those kind of things. Evolution did it isn't even that kind of an answer because if evolution results in uh, our awareness of morality, we still need to talk about what morality is. Like, does it actually exist? And here's an interesting thing. He talks about morality like this. I, I, I love to say what I've said before here, which is he says you have to have, he's going to say later, you have to have some objective criteria of some sort for morality. Well, uh, yeah, I agree. But I think what he means is more the Matt Dillahunty thing. I don't think he would say there is an objective morality above and beyond humanity. I think that what he would say, I think that what he's trying to say is we have to agree on a better, an objectively better or worse way to get to some moral goal. And that moral goal may be subjectively decided. And he talks more about what is, how they subjectively decide that goal in a moment. So we'll come back to that or maybe in another video. But because uh, this is getting long, we may have to go to a different video. But I, I just want to point out to you that, that if you're saying I have a subjectively chosen goal, like human flourishing or human happiness or, or whatever else, if you have a subjectively chosen goal, it's kind of like the game of chess, as Dillahunty puts it. Um, the, winning the game of chess, the, you know, getting the, the king in, into um, checkmate or whatever. This, this is um, a subjectively decided thing. Like we decided that in this game, here are the rules. And if these rules go this way, and if a person makes all these moves and arrives at such and such a position that meets these criteria, then he has uh, won the game. And that's a subjectively chosen goal. But the way to get to checkmate, there are objectively better and worse ways of getting there. And I think this is what he's doing here. If he is trying to argue for some objective morality above and beyond mankind, I would really love to hear what that is without God. But I don't think he's doing that. I think he would say it's subjective at that level, just like we subjectively decided on the game of chess and decided here's how you win the game of chess. But then there are objectively better or worse ways within the game of chess to arrive at that goal. Okay, that let, let's assume that's it. That's I think Dillahunty's view. Let's say that's Arnon Ra's view. He's got we so so we got a bubble over here, and and over Christians want to say there's an overarching. Uh, hanging above all the little moral communities we could have out here. There's an overarching uh, morality that hangs over all of those. There's an overarching purpose that hangs over all of those. What Dill, uh, what Dill Hunty, yes, and what I think Aaron Raw is trying to argue is this doesn't exist. So what we have to have is this. And in this bubble, we've got people who agree with Aaron Raw's morality. And Aaron Raw's morality is that uh, we're to do whatever it takes to, to let's say build happiness, build moral happiness, uh, sorry, build happiness among humans. And, um, but, but nobody's allowed to get hurt and you're not allowed to hurt other people to, to get your happiness, but you got your happiness. Okay. That's great. So he's got his happiness bubble over here and, and, and he can't say that people over here in this other bubble, what they're doing, let's say that they're, they agree that, that basically it's going to function like, uh, um, like, uh, what do you call that movie? Um, uh, the purge. It's going to operate like the purge over here. And in here, we do have some moral rules, but, but, but within our morality, you can have this purge. Okay. 
if you're over here, you know that some of the things going over here are considered immoral on your paradigm over here. And you can tell everyone else in here who has stated that they agree with your game of chess, your moral system, that you can tell them they should do X and Y. They should value this and not that. You can tell them that within your moral system. But if you come over here to the purge moral system, then over here, you, you have no authority to tell them. Because if you did try to tell them they should be functioning like you, you might appeal to them that, oh, you'd be happier this way or whatever. But if they said, we don't care, take a hike. You don't have anything high that hangs above all of these moral systems to appeal to and then say, because of that, you should come over here and start acting the way we act. You simply can't say that. All you can say is those people over there, we don't like the way they act. And you can that's the most you can say. We don't like what they do. And they can say, we don't like what they do. And you can say, we like what we do here. And they can say, we like what we do here. But you can't say that what they do is wrong with a capital W over and above everything. You can just say in our moral bubble, we consider that wrong. Now, maybe you could say something like, yeah, it's wrong according to our way of seeing things. And they can say, yeah, what they're doing over there, making it all about happiness without hurting people. That's wrong according to the way we do things over here. And the Christian can hang above all of that and he can say, okay, you're both wrong because we're going to agree a lot with the pursuit of happiness, right? We're going to agree a lot, a lot with, with how the people in that bubble function, right? Especially with the not hurting people and all that. But uh, but we're not going to agree that the highest moral ethic is to try and maximize happiness or just pursue happiness. And we're not going to agree over here with the purge either. We were going to agree with what we think is the overarching thing. And we can talk about that. But if you're here, understand what I'm saying. If you're in the RN raw moral bubble where people agree with RN raw about this, you simply have no basis to point over to this other bubble, which could be. Um, some horrible regime, or it could be uh, the purge, or it could be whatever. You have no business. You have no uh, basis for pointing at that bubble and saying they are wrong to do that. You can just say, we all think that if they saw morality the way we did and they did that, they'd be wrong to do it. That, that just doesn't, that's not that. Okay, fine. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's what we're saying. As long as you understand, that's what we're saying. That one is cultural. When the mind is deprived of oxygen in an existential crisis, the subject is likely to experience whatever they've been conditioned to expect, whether it's astral projection or spectral manifestations or a long dark tunnel or whatever. The longtime atheists who have either never had those expectations or have gotten over it tend not to have such experiences at all, while Hindus have profoundly different near-death experiences back to consciousness with claims of having met their gods and having proof of reincarnation, which of course contradicts the Christian accounts. And again, no one can show that their experience is any more valid or that they've really even experienced anything outside of their own culturally conditioned imaginations. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So let's think about this for just a moment. Uh, there are millions of near-death accounts and he, you know, the, the fact of this is, is that explanation that we just heard does not explain uh, what I'm most interested in. I'm not interested most in what people claim to have experienced in their heavenly experience, except for the fact that there are commonalities across near-death experiences of this sort. And they often involve seeing a being of light or cities of light or something like that. And uh, one answer that's often been given is when a Hindu 
uh, has that sort of an experience where they interpret everything as being of their, uh, you know, their supernatural beings or whatever else that if the being doesn't have a name tag, then perhaps whoever's experiencing it puts their own uh, cultural phenomenon onto that. Yes, I, I'm totally uh, willing to accept that that's a possibility. But you know what doesn't work well with that? <laughs> Naturalism. All you would have proven is whatever is happening supernaturally is very ambiguous, or the Hindu supernatural stuff seems different than the Christian supernatural stuff. Okay, great. But if there's near-death supernatural stuff happening, guess what isn't really on the table? Naturalism isn't on the table. Now, what this doesn't account for are evidential cases. What I'm more interested in is when people are able to talk about things that happened on Earth that they shouldn't be aware of when they were in a state like this, perhaps with no brainwave and no heart rate. They shouldn't be able to know that their teeth, that their false teeth are in a crash cart drawer in another room where they were put while the person was completely unconscious and in a state like that. They shouldn't be able to know about the, the utensils that were used on them or the dirty jokes that a doctor told while they were unconscious. Yes, these are out there. Um, you, you can check into these. I have uh, one video on consciousness. We're going to come back to mention that in a little bit. And I have a video on near-death experiences. Both mention near-death experiences. And no, uh, no, 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 no. There's a little more work that needs to be done to deal with these cases. And I don't think we got it here. 50 years of research into near-death experiences. And you've got a handful at best uh, of, of, of things that don't have a clear explanation. And everything else doesn't even show that there's a there there. Everything else doesn't even show there's a there there. Everything else. But he says there's a handful here that, that need explanation. Great. That's why I mention it. I think there's a lot more than a handful, but if you think there's a handful, great. That's more than one. That's more than two. That's a handful. So what is your explanation for these things? Because what I keep trying to get at is how does your worldview account for this better than uh, my worldview? And let's talk about how both of our worldviews account for this. Maybe this is an admission that his worldview doesn't account for this. Or maybe he's just saying, I don't know. Uh, but my explanation is that uh, we that death is not the end and that we can have experiences continuing after physical death and that near-death experiences sometimes uh, give us some reason to, to believe that such a person who experienced the NDE, the near-death experience, has, uh, has, has seen something of the bridging between those two gap, that gap, uh, between those two realities. And I'm, I'm happy to say, look, there are journal articles on this. I've got videos on this. Lots of people talk about this. This is something they're aware of in the medical field. And I'm waiting for your explanation of this to, to help me understand that even just that handful that you say still need to be explained. However, neither evolution nor Christianity can explain the rapid expansion of the early church. That is better explained by human corruption because it started with a Jewish cult of renunciate leftist pacifist abstentionists and was incrementally altered to become a new and different religion of right-wing militant dominionists in pursuit of prosperity gospel. There is very little Christ left in Christianity anymore. There's very little Christ left in Christianity anymore. So so you're admitting that uh that these people aren't acting like Christ would want them, right? They they're not acting like Jesus. They're not acting like Christians, okay? 
So I'm asking what explain. I'm just throwing out there. I think that Christianity explains this really well, the rapid expansion of the early church. I mean, uh, if there never was an Elvis, if no one ever, if he never had the pork chop sideburns, if he never had the blue suede shoes and the weird jumpsuits that nobody understood and wrote the number one hits and nailed the comeback special and all of those kind of things. If that never happened, will we even have one Elvis Presley impersonator today? No, but we have thousands and thousands. In fact, somebody did a study in the late 70s and there was like 170 or something. And then they did it again in the 90s and said there was 87,000 Elvis impersonators. And if the trend continued, uh, then that might mean that one out of every three persons by 2020 would be an Elvis impersonator. Well, if there never was an Elvis and he ever did any of those things, would we have one Elvis impersonator? Probably not, unless maybe it was one of his kids. If there, if there never was a Jesus, if Jesus, uh, did, if people did not believe that he had died by Roman crucifixion, if some people did not have experiences that at least they interpreted as appearances of the resurrected Jesus, why, if Christianity just wasn't a thing, why do you think that we would have uh, people, little Jesus impersonators, people that want to be like Jesus, not false messiahs, but Jesus impersonators in the sense that they are Christians. Why did that expand? Why did that begin to grow? I, I think it be, could be because something like a resurrection was witnessed, and that would serve as a motivator for something like that. Uh, that's my explanation. What you treated us to was later history and what what Christians have done who aren't acting like Jesus on past that time. And yeah, that's that. there are people that did that. And again, I want to reiterate that I am with you. People that aren't Christians, who are unbelievers or a part of some other religion or atheists, who pretend to be Christians or who take the name of Christ and then don't act like Christians, I, I don't like that either. I think that's bad. We agree about that. Now, let's finish up with this last bit about, um, I, I forgot to mention about free will. He says that prophecy doesn't make sense, or free will doesn't make sense on Christianity because of prophecy. Um, why? I, I think what he would say is because the, if, if a prophecy is possible, if it's possible for God to have a prophet say something about what's going to happen in the future, then that means that future action is already set and cannot be otherwise. There's an important difference here. It will, it, it won't be otherwise, but whether it could be otherwise is a question about the nature of freedom. You see, there are basically two ways of looking at this. Either determinism is true, in which case um, what we call your choices, uh, and they are choices, but they aren't freely chosen in, in the libertarian sense. Rather, uh, what we call your choices on naturalism is the result of the past history of the universe, like a chain of dominoes or billions of chains of dominoes stretching back to the beginning of the universe. And uh, they resulted ultimately in the in, in your parents and uh, your conception and the formation of your brain and your neural structure and your life experiences. And all of that plays into the firings of neurons in your brain that we call your choices, but they literally could not have been otherwise, not ultimately. On the Christian paradigm, you have something like Calvinism, where determinism is still true, but instead of the natural history of the universe, it's God uh, ordaining a particular world to be a certain way. And I, I don't accept that either. But you still have, with or without Christianity, you have determinism or libertarian freedom. What is sometimes called compatibilism is, is thought of some, by some people as like a middle option. And it's not a middle option. Compatibilism is determinism, but it is the thesis that... Um, Determinism is in some way compatible with uh, morality or morally significant, uh, uh, you know, blame and culpability and, and uh, praiseworthiness and, and all of those things because and they'll use the language of freedom and, and they and it's fine, but they're referring to a compatibilist understanding of freedom. They're not saying libertarian freedom is compatible with determinism. 
Okay, so I'm a libertarian. I believe that that uh, in most cases, anyway, whatever I ended up doing, I could have done other than that. But ultimately, what's important uh, for libertarian freedom, uh, the thing that's both that 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 is necessary is that nothing external to me determined. Now it could influence, but determined my actions. So when it comes to an issue of prophecy, uh, the what what we're talking about here is what is God is telling people what He knows people will freely do. If people freely chose otherwise in time, God would have known otherwise and would have prophesied otherwise. So take something like uh, uh, Peter denying Christ. Okay, um, that was said to happen before it happened. So uh, if if God be true and every man a liar, then it must be the case. One would think that that means that Peter could not. Peter could not have done other than deny Christ because that's what Jesus said that he would do. Except for the fact that if God knew timelessly that Peter in time would not choose to uh, deny Christ, then God would have known that and Jesus would have said otherwise. It's as simple as that. I don't understand this idea that if God knows what's going to happen in the future, then that necessarily means that the future is set and could not have been otherwise. It will not be otherwise if God tells you what is going to happen, but that doesn't mean the agent in the moment doesn't have libertarian free will and can do any number of things. It's just that God knows what he will end up doing. Not that hard. So I was originally going to respond to all of Aaron's answers. I will respond to the rest of them in a later video, but hopefully this will be enough for now to get you thinking. And with that, we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.